price drop? Time to shop. Get to a Nordstrom Rack store today for first dibs on new markdowns. Now score even more, up to 70% off brands everyone loves at Nordstrom Rack. Denim, dresses, sneakers, tops, and more. Plus, get genius deals on jackets, sweaters, and boots for the whole family. Shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and save up to 70% with new markdowns. But hurry, deals this great won't last. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. Welcome to a preview of Season 18. We have a really great slate of shows coming up in Season 18. I'm here with Graham Shedd, who produces this show each week. It's hard to believe we've done over 200 shows so far, isn't it? It certainly is, and it's not just the quantity, it's the quality. (laughs) That's right. That's right. I mean, we've had guests ranging from Nobelists to opera singers to comedians and actors and authors and journalists. There are two things that distinguish our guests. One is they're all great communicators. And the other is that they're people that you really wanted to sit down and have a conversation with. And first up on this preview is a conversation I had with two actors who I greatly admire and who I also treasure as friends. Alfred Molina and Victor Garber. You probably know Victor Garber from his starring roles on television and Broadway and films. And you have a special relationship with Alfred Molina, don't you, Graham? Well, we're both Brits, as you'll soon find out when you hear him in a moment. I was chatting with him before we uh, recorded your conversation with them both the other day. Um, And I told him that he was the only person ever scared my then seven-year-old son out of a movie theater. (laughs) (laughs) with his role, his first role as Dr. Octopus. He's played Doc Ock twice now in in the um, Spider-Man movies, but that first one really so scared Adam that we actually had to leave the movie theater. Fred Molina and Victor Garber and I first met in a play 24 years ago on Broadway. And, you know, unlike most acting jobs where you have a close relationship for a few weeks and then you drift apart... Something interesting happened that continued to draw us together after the play closed. Partly, I guess, is that it was a beautifully written, hilarious play about friendship, which sort of seeped into our own friendship. But I think it also had something to do with how we got ready for the play before every performance. And that didn't have anything to do with acting. Here's here's Fred Molina talking about how unusual it was. It's quite extraordinary, you know, when you thought all the years that we're together, that we've been actors, you know, if you accumulate the hundreds of years of experience, and it, it's, uh, it's amazing how one play can absolutely just, not just capture a, a, an experience, like the, the wonderful experience of doing the play, but also it captured a, a very clear, in my mind, you know, to, to borrow the title of your podcast, Alan, it's, it's a clear and vivid memory of a very, very specific time. And the memory, even after 24 years, is still as sharp as it was the the, the, the week after. 
It's amazing. I woke up this morning thinking, what better thing could I be doing than this? <laughs> and that's a sad comment on my life. <laughs> one of the things that made the, the play so important to me, one, one was it was such a wonderful play. Another was that you were such wonderful partners on the stage. But then there was that thing we did every yeah. night before the show. It's not usual for actors to get together and talk together and laugh together for an hour before a performance. Very often people want to be in their own space. That's right. But what's interesting, though, is that, you know, all, all the jargon that we give ourselves as actors, talking about preparation, motivation, getting in, in being in the moment and all that sort of thing, it's really just about getting in the mood. <laughs> yeah. That's really what it boils down to. That's such a good way to put it. And I think that's what we did. We would sometimes collect in the green room. Sometimes we'd be in each other's dressing rooms, depending on where we were. And I can remember we just would come in and we would bring, we would carry our day with us. And we'd start talking about, oh, I did this thing today. And, oh, I'm, you know, this, this thing irritated me or that. I got a great phone call with so-and-so. And I remember one, one wonderful comment that you made, which I've stolen shamelessly, Alan. I think it was in an interview or so, and you were talking about this this thing that we were doing, this kind of process that we just fell into naturally, where we would just get together for an hour up before the show and just talk. And then we would just carry that energy onto the stage. And someone said, well, what, what kind of things do you talk about? And you, Alan, said, well, you know, we talk about what happened during the day. And as soon as one of us starts getting sincere, the other two let him have it. <laughs> yeah, right. One of the main things we did was to make each other laugh by making fun of one another. Yeah, but I, I, I don't think that particular way of doing things would apply to many plays. I think that this play warranted that in a way that we, we instinctively knew that that was the best way for all of us to kind of be on the same level. Did you take to it right away, Victor? No. As soon as you said, I think we should spend a lot of time together, I was like, leave me alone. I barely know you. We're going to spend two hours together on the stage. What more do you want? <laughs> One of the things that we would talk about, aside from our day, do you remember this? We used to talk about the people who had come backstage <laughs> to see us after the show. Talk about it is one way of putting it. <laughs> yeah, we sort of critiqued them. Yeah. Did they do good backstage? It's, it's a hard thing. A lot of people don't realize that when you go backstage, no matter how experienced the actors are who you've just watched, it's like walking into a burn ward. Everybody is super sensitive. They've really opened themselves up during the performance. And you have to be careful what you say. You can't say, we had very good seats. <laughs> well, my favorite one is, they come back, and you, you open the door and they say, how are you? How yeah. are you? Yes. Well, you tell me, how was I? <laughs> you you got to say something positive. I, I figured out, you got to say, you were wonderful. You got to say, you, you can't say, it was wonderful. And by the way, I don't understand why people have uh, take umbrage with that sort of thing. Well, you you can't just go look a lie. I said, yes, you can. You can yeah, lie. Of course. Yeah, right. You don't care whether it's real or not. I have a friend who says, "What are we under oath?" <laughs> <laughs> but isn't it really just down to kind of basic care and concern for each other's feeling? Yeah, but a lot of people, a lot of people, even in the business, sometimes forget what it's like to be minutes away from having just done yeah. a performance. Yeah. You're, you're a little raw. 
I remember I was as vulnerable in the last thing I did as I was my whole life. Nothing really changed. I think the word is needy. <laughs> needy, needy. Next up, we have the scientist Francis Collins. He unraveled the genes behind a number of really bad diseases and then unraveled the whole human genome with the, as being the head of the Human Genome Project. He was the director of the National Institutes of Health for 13 years. And just when he retired at the end of 21, 2021, uh, he was appointed within two months as a science advisor to the president, the interim science advisor to President Joe Biden. So he was about to go leave, go back to his precious lab when he was called back to duty. But the day that you talked to him, he had just heard that uh, a permanent science advisor had been chosen, was going before the Senate soon for confirmation. So he was really looking forward to going back to the lab for real this time. One of the things that interests me about Francis Collins is that he's a great scientist who's also a devout believer he not only sees no conflict between the two, but I think he feels they complement each other. As a non-believer myself, I was interested in how he resolved the difference between what seemed to many like two different worlds. And I suspected that one trait he had that served him well in both of those worlds was curiosity. You know, maybe I'm off base, but I, I think curiosity is so important yeah. to your life that I... I sense a, a little bit of curiosity motivating you when you had that experience with the heart patient. I think you're right. I think you're talking about when I was a medical student. Yeah. And I, at that point, had learned a lot about the human body scientifically, immersed myself in all of that, found it fascinating, and was quite convinced that a combination of that kind of physiology and understanding of genetics might really go somewhere interesting. And that's kind of where I was mapping myself. But I hadn't really thought to any significant degree about larger questions, Alan, like, what is the meaning of all this anyway? And why am I here? Those are like, eh, uncomfortable. And by the way, they kind of tap into pretty quickly, is there a God or is this just all a bunch of atoms and molecules? So I'd ignored those questions. If you'd asked me that day where I sat at the bedside of that heart patient, do you believe in God? I would have said, absolutely not. But then she asked me. She was having a really bad episode of chest pain. And I realized our medicine had nothing to offer her. And as she got through it, she told me that the way that she was getting through this suffering was to depend on her faith and talk very personally and very openly about that as the thing she was really depending on, uh, basically because she knew medicine wasn't going to save her. And then she just turned to me and said, Doctor, I've told you about my beliefs. What do you believe? Hmm. And suddenly I couldn't answer. <laughs> suddenly I couldn't just say, oh, I don't believe any of this. There's no such thing as God, because I realized I really didn't know. It was like that shining moment where somebody poses a question so simple and you realize the breadth of your ignorance on that topic is so incredibly wide that you have no right to answer anything other than, I don't know. And if you're a scientist and you say, I don't know, that kind of obligates you to do something about it. <laughs> and that's So what did you do? 
Well, I decided I'd better study all of the reasons why people believe and why people don't believe so I could shore up my atheism because that's where I was and that's where I wanted to be. But I'd realized I don't have a good defense for this. I haven't spent the time to really survey it. And I found to my surprise that the evidence really tipped in the other way. I first had to admit, after a little bit of looking at this, that atheism was probably the least rational of all the choices because it's the assertion of a universal negative. And scientists really aren't supposed to do that unless you have all of the information the universe has ever possibly contributed or made available in your head. How could you say there can't be a God? Well, maybe there's some information you don't have yet. Along those lines... I read you say someplace that mapping the human genome was both a stunning scientific achievement and an occasion of worship. Mm -hmm. So that really answers in spades my question, does it prevent you from looking further? Apparently, you feel that the further you look, the more you're worshiping the God who made it all. I think if you are like me, someone who sees the evidence that there was a creator behind this incredibly awesome, complicated, and beautiful universe. That if, as a scientist, you get to explore some of the details of that creation, and you learn something that nobody knew before, then you're getting a glimpse of God's mind. And that means that every scientific effort is also a form of worship, and the laboratory is like a cathedral in its own way. I hear people, Alan, sometimes say, oh, you know, you scientists, you, you take all the awe out of things by explaining how it works. You know, you're going to tell us why the rainbow has the colors. You're going to tell us why the sky is red at sunset. I don't want to hear it because it doesn't seem as full of awe. Not true. It's even more so because it reflects this amazing intelligence and beauty of the mathematics and the biology and the physics that's behind all of this that we're beginning to glimpse. And then you just have to look at it and say, that's even more amazing. Later in the season, we have another scientist, uh, Charles Lim. Charles studies hearing, that's his basic research. And he's an expert on uh, cochlear implants, amongst other things. But as a sort of side interest of his, because he's a musician, he loved to play the saxophone, uh, he became fascinated by the idea of creativity in the brain, in particular, how jazz musicians improvise. I'm always fascinated when people work to pin down what's happening in the brain in moments of creativity and improvisation, two things that I've been trying to understand all my life. So Charles Lim was the perfect person to talk to, a brain scientist, a musician, and an improviser. So I was somebody who had known about improvisation just as a musician. You know, I, I, I had been doing this since I was in high school, and so I knew very intuitively that my mode of thinking or being or living or feeling changed when I started improvising. There's just a different, um, you're in a different state of mind. How did and, it change? Well, for me, I felt that a couple things happened. One was there was a um, an immersion, so a, a, a loss of the sort of self-consciousness of 
doing something like a performance. So for me, especially especially if I was improvising alone, just for example, I would just go play in a stairwell or something like that that was echoic and hear the reverb of my instrument and nobody would be around me. There you can lose yourself in a way that doesn't happen that often in um, too many ordinary uh, life experiences, although it can certainly happen in, in certain things. But I found myself, time passes, you get a certain... Um, I think you're getting to know yourself better while you're also doing this complex task of playing an instrument. And, and for me, it was, I think, very um, profound as a, as a teenager to understand that I could generate something that I'd never played before. I had that same experience in terms of improvising as an actor. A, a couple of years after I began doing it on a regular basis, it changed me as an actor, and it also changed me as a person. For the first time, I became comfortable making small talk. Up until then, as soon as I met somebody, I'd want to talk about the meaning of life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but just to riff with the other person can be pleasurable if you let yourself do it. Yeah, no, there's, there's such a self-consciousness and such a notion of being correct or right or wrong and being judged and evaluated. And so... It was nice to, and I, I, I think I'm my harshest critic when it comes to things like music. Um, you know, you, you grow up listening to John Coltrane, and all of a sudden, when you're trying to play saxophone, you don't sound so good. And so, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I felt like I was starting to understand that the creative mind was this unique brain state, and that maybe you could get to understand that brain state using sort of standard scientific approaches that had been kind of off limits for scientists for many, many years. So the standard scientific approach that Charles Lim used was the uh, was functional magnetic resonance, um, you know, an MRI machine that can actually find out what parts of the brain are active when you're doing different tasks. And what he did is he put jazz musicians in the uh, MRI machine and had them play a set piece of music and then play a piece of music where they were improvising. Then he looked to see if their brain was behaving differently in those two different cases. The first, I think, most important thing we see is that their prefrontal cortex, and that's a vast portion of the brain where things like conscious self-monitoring and effortful planning reside. Mm -hmm. These parts of the brain are being deactivated when the musician begins improvising. And that is very interesting when you think about this idea that in improvisation, you kind of have to let go. You don't want to be overly self-conscious. You don't want to be effortfully planning what comes next. If you do that, in a sense, you've lost the game. Like you're, you're no longer really improvising if you're effortfully planning um, step by step. Uh, I think in order for improvisation to work right, you actually have to surrender that um, tendency to want to control all of your output. We used to say when we were doing an improvising session that improvising is not writing on your feet. It's not deciding what to say, editing it in your head, and then saying it, which is more like a writing process. But you, but you have right. to be free to let it emerge on its own. So the quieting of the prefrontal cortex during improvisation on the part of a musician is accomplishing... The, the resistance to editing himself, the resistance to say, how am I doing? Is this the right way to go? Should I go a different way? Right? All of those impulses are 
calmed. I think that's a, that's a good way of putting it. I mean, in a, in a way, the brain is trying to get out of its own yeah. way to allow this flow of novel ideas to be unimpeded by the need to evaluate the idea. So, you know, when if you're if you're a jazz musician playing, you know, improvising a solo, you don't want to be judging the correctness or or um, success of each note that's coming out. It's it's totally detrimental to the idea of just playing whatever you are playing. You've always been interested in how classical musicians are creative in their performances, because after all, they're limited to playing the exact notes that the composer wrote. But there's a lot of difference in the way they interpret that. That's right. I was thinking of what classical musicians had told me about the moments of creativity in a performance. And as you say, they have to play the notes as written, but the way they play them is creative and a little improvisational. And they tell me that the only way they can do that is to practice until they have complete command technically, and then that frees them. I think that's exactly right. And, you know, if you think about other versions of life where there's this balance between practice, preparation, and creativity. So I think about athletics quite a bit. You know, if you watch Michael Jordan or if you watch Steph Curry, you know, some of these very, like, creative basketball players, what are they doing behind the scenes? They're working, they're dribbling, hmm. they're doing fundamentals, they're, they're shooting free throws over and over again. They're doing these very basic, repetitive things so that when they're on the court, I think it just allows them to unleash, you know, you know that's so ingrained in them that they don't have to devote too much of their brain activity towards that. Now they can go off in all of these unexpected creative ways. And I think a lot of chefs are the same way, you know. Why do you go to culinary school? Not so you can follow recipes. It's so that in the end, you don't need to look at a recipe. You can just take any ingredient that's given to you at any moment and figure out how to do something delicious with it. It's, it's improvising with food and flavors and smells. And so I think there's so many different human versions of creativity. And the reason why that's the case is because they're all mediated through our same brain. And so whether it's athletics, whether it's cooking, whether it's comedy, whether it's rap, whether it's music, whether it's classical, whether it's jazz, I think the, there's a core universal creative substrate in the brain that allows us to do all of these things, depending on the nature of the task and how spontaneous it is. It may phase in and out, but from my experiments, I'm convinced that one of the core attributes is the ability to turn off your brain and how quickly and how deeply you can do that. Another of our guests is my friend Ken Oletta. He's written a powerful new book about the case that helped bring about one of the major changes in our culture. The book is about Harvey Weinstein, whose barbaric behavior helped ignite the outrage of the Me Too movement. It's called Hollywood Ending, Harvey Weinstein and the Culture of Silence. And in it, Ken works to get under the skin of this ultimate bully, and to explore how he was able to commit his crimes for so many years. His reporting on Weinstein actually goes back a couple of decades. I did a, a profile of Harvey Weinstein for the New Yorker magazine in 2002. And in the profile, I described his abusive verbal behavior and the fistfights, et cetera, he would get in. And huh. what, a, what, a, what a kind of a thug he was. Talented, but nevertheless a thug. And I got, I heard whispers that he had raped a woman by the name of Rowena Chu at the 1998 Venice Film Festival. And that his London assistant, who Rowena Chu was replacing as she got a promotion, Zelda Perkins, 
had brought a suit against Harvey, threatened a lawsuit against Harvey, along with Rowena in London. And I tried to track down Rowena and, and Zelda. I, I actually tracked Zelda Perkins down to Guatemala, where she was then living. She refused to talk to me. I couldn't find Rowena Chu. I confronted Harvey Weinstein in my last interview with him in 2002 before my profile. I said, Harvey Weinstein, did you attempt to rape Rowena Chu? And he got up from the small conference table, just the two of us in, his, in a conference room. He stood up and he stood over me and his, he held his fists and his lip trembled. And he said, you're gonna ruin my, my marriage and my three teenage daughters will be exposed and, and it'll just destroy my family. You can't do that. I, sitting down, said, I can't sit down and let this guy stand over me. He'll take, he'll take a poke at me, and I'm a sitting target sitting down, but I'll stand up, and I'll face him. We're the same height. He was about 100 pounds more than me, but I'm sure he was a lot faster than he was. And I stood up. We stood face to face. As soon as I did, what happened? Harvey Weinstein began to cry. <laughs> and I don't mean tears. I mean wailed that it's going to destroy my life if you do this, blah, 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 blah. But I was then in, the, in this curious position, and the New Yorker was in this curious position. We believed that he had assaulted Rowena Chu, but we had no, no evidence of it. There were no police reports, there was no forensic evidence, there were no witnesses. And, and Rowena Chu and, and Zelda Perkins, the two women involved, um, wouldn't speak. And so Harvey called up, at that point, called up, Dave Remnick, the editor of The New Yorker, and asked for a summit meeting, thinking we were going to write this story. And we hadn't yet decided uh, finally, but I, I knew we couldn't write it without the evidence. And I said, Harvey, I need to see your cancer, how you paid for these non two non-disclosure agreements. By the way, it was a total of almost $500,000. Hmm. How'd you pay for it? And he said, why, why are you asking that? I said, Harvey, because I, I need to see that. Because I was privately, I told David Remnick, the editor of The New Yorker, if we could prove that his parent company, Disney, had paid, or his current company, Miramax, had paid, we didn't need the women testimony. We could nail this guy. And actually, a, a crime would probably have been committed. He came back the next day with his brother, Bob, and slid across the table two cancel checks from his brother, Bob personal checks. So Bob, who said to me later in the book, and I spent a fair amount of time with the brother in reporting this book, said to me that his brother told him these women were blackmailing him and would destroy his marriage. Could you help me, Bob? And Bob says, I did help him. You talk in the book about a culture of silence. What, what did that mean? How did it work? What it, it means is that people knew or should have known he was abusing women and kept silent. And I, I tell a story, for instance, in the book about Hillary Silver, a woman, a young woman who came, who came for a job interview at Miramax in the, in the 1990s. And she, she comes up in the elevator, and who's in the elevator with her but Harvey Weinstein? And Harvey looks her up and down, she's a very attractive woman. He looks her up and down, and he says, where are you going? He says, I, I have an interview at, at, with the head of human resources at, at, the Weinstein, at Miramax. He says, great, when you're done, come and see me. This is, he's talking to a stranger, right? <laughs> she goes, does her interview, and the head of HR walks her back to Harvey's office because she said he, the boss wanted to see me. As soon as she walks in, what does Harvey do? 
without talking to the HR executive who interviewed her, he says, he points to her and he says, Hillary, you're hired. Hmm. So she's hired. She was excited. She said, I'm, I'm taking a trip to Europe, a long plan. When I come back, I'll start in three, three or four weeks. So the day before she's to start work, she gets a call from human resource executive who says, four people who work here would love to take you for a drink tomorrow, today, you know, this evening. And she says, oh, my God, this is what a great place this is to work. What a culture. They're welcoming me to Miramax. It's great. So she goes for a drink and the four executives, some from HR, one of the four assistants that Harvey Weinstein had and two other executives look at her and they say, Hillary, you don't want to come to work here. Reject this job. Why? Why should I reject the job? Because he will abuse you sexually. You're an attractive woman, and that's what happens to attractive women who work here. You're in danger. Don't come to work here. And she didn't come to work here. Now, if four people, not just people who worked within his immediate office, one of whom did, if they knew that Harvey was abusing the woman this way, how many other people know? And not just the people who worked for Harvey at Miramax. What about the agents? They would send actresses to see him in hotel suites when he went to another city. He worked out of a hotel suite, and no one was there. That He left his staff go, and he would often abuse the women. They would complain to their agents. The agents did nothing. Later in the season, we have a married couple, John and Julie Gottman, who together have developed a tremendously powerful technique for probing the success or failure of a relationship even before it might happen. I think everybody who has a relationship with somebody ought to listen to this episode, which is probably most of the people in the world. For decades, they've studied what makes relationships succeed or end in disaster. It started 50 years ago when John set up what he called a love lab when he was at Indiana University, where he had couples come in and practice trying to settle disputes between, conflicts between them while being wired up and uh, with heart monitors and blood pressure monitors and skin conductance monitors. And then later, a few years later, after he married Julie Schwartz, now Julie Schwartz Gottman, they developed the Love Lab into a more elaborate studio. Julie and I built a laboratory at the University of Washington where 130 newlywed couples just occupied an apartment kind of setting where they could move around very freely. And uh, we studied them for 24 hours, uh, had wow. the cameras going for 24 hours. And Julie, was that set up in the same way, measuring their heart rate and that kind of thing? Yes, except um, they had halter monitors uh, that allowed them to move all over the apartment. So they could turn away from each other. They could walk to the other end of the room and so on. So it was a little bit different. Um, we were also collecting urine samples. <laughs> we were collecting blood uh, and so on. So it was more detailed physiological measures than what we had done before. What kind of correspondence did you get between those uh, measurements you were taking and what was going on between the couple? Well, the interesting thing was that when we studied couples over time, we found that the couples who were more physiologically aroused, whose 
hearts were beating faster, his blood were flowing faster, and so on, uh, had relationships that deteriorated over time. And hmm. that was the basic finding. So the people who were calmer, when they talked to one another and interacted with one another, had relationships that got better and better over time. Let me jump in here. There was another very, very important and difficult to see finding that came out of that apartment lab. When a person made a bid for attention or a bid for connection, how did the other person respond? If the other person... Now, what would be an example? I'm sorry. What would be an example of a bid for attention? Okay. It might be this. Uh, the apartment lab looked over uh, a course of water, just beautiful river water. So if one person went to the window and said, wow, look at that beautiful boat, and the other person said nothing, we found, we called that turning away. If the person who was listening was reading a book and said, stop interrupting me, I'm trying to read. We call that turning against. But if the person who was listening went over to the window and said, wow, that was turning towards. Or even grunted. Or grunted. <laughs> mm. yeah. A loving <laughs> grunt. And what we so found, would you see, well, what we yeah, found, Alan, this was amazing, is that six years down the road, the couples who were successful six years down the road turned towards each other in those bids for connection 86% of the time. The couples mm. who failed to stay close and ended up either separating or being very unhappy only turned towards each other 33% of the time. That was a big finding. What's amazing to me is that Putting all of this together, you were able to predict whether a couple would stay together or get divorced or stay together and be happy or not be happy. What was your success rate in that? Because you followed up on these couples. Yeah, our, our best prediction was 94% accuracy. Wow. And uh, But we're always, always over 90%, whether it's with a heterosexual couple or a gay and lesbian couple. Um, the same set of findings replicated over and over again. So I was, I, I knew it was high. I didn't know it was that high. I was telling my wife, Arlene, how you could predict success. And she said, well, we're married 65 years. Find out if we'll stay together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I actually uh, listened to an interview with Arlene uh, this morning uh, about her secrets, you know, for keeping oh, the relationship yeah. going. And, you know, she's spot on. You know, her, her intuition is perfect. Her secret for a long marriage is a short memory. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. Another episode later in the season is with a philosopher who's sort of unusual for us, but this is an unusual philosopher. His name is Scott Hershevitz, and he's written a wonderful book with a great title, Nasty, brutish, and short. <laughs> and it's actually about his two kids, his two young boys, Hank and Rex. And their questions, their innocent but deeply probing questions, led him to realize that what they were asking were some of the questions that have fascinated philosophers for thousands of years. 
I really loved how Scott could find profound meaning in the things his children would come up with, including whether there's such a thing as objective truth. And I, I was tempted to joust with him a little bit on that, and I found out it's not a good idea to joust with a guy who's a professional thinker. So we've had really interesting conversations in our house about this with my kids, who at various points, um, both of them now actually have been skeptical of the existence of objective truth. So I tell this story in the book of one night at dinner shortly after the insurrection at the Capitol. My older son, Rex, says that Donald Trump is a bad president. And my younger son, Hank, says, well, he's a bad president to us, but he's a good president to the people that like him. And I said, Hank, do you mean that they think he's good, but they're wrong? And he said, no, we think he's good and they think he's bad. And there's nothing in the middle that says who's right. And I was really struck by that. You know, it's a, endorsing a kind of relativism about truth, that we have our truth and the people who think Donald Trump is a good president have their truth and that there's just no objective fact of the matter. And I was curious how far he'd push it. I said, Hank, if we go outside and I say it's raining and you say it's not, is one of us right and the other one wrong? And he said, it's raining for you, but not for me. Well, let me tell you how I think I agree with him to a certain extent. Yeah. It, I remember I was taught in logic class, the, the first rule of logic in the course I was taught was that a thing cannot both be and not be at the same time and in the same respect. In the same respect is the tricky part, because that has to do with the angle you come in on, the what, the, the point of view you come from. And I could, you, we could walk outside, and there could be rain hitting us, and you say, "Is it? Is this rain or what?" And uh -huh. I say, "I've been in a monsoon, pal. You call this rain?" Yeah. Yeah, no, I love that example because it shows the flexibility of language, right? So, um, and and we can have really. The flexibility of language means that we can have really playful conversations. So I say it's raining, and you say, you call this rain? This isn't rain, <laughs> right? And, um, you know, what's happening there in that case is actually we're not disagreeing about the facts. We're not disagreeing about whether the, there's precipitation and we're getting wet. We're having what philosophers call a metalinguistic negotiation, um, which is just a fancy— <laughs> I, love, I, love, I love how there's a name for everything. Yeah, it's just That's a fancy great. word for we're arguing over how we're going to use the word rain, right? right? The same thing right. happens when I say um, when I say it's cold in here, and uh, and you say no, it's not, right? You know, like it may be that we're not disagreeing about the temperature, right? We're just disagreeing about. Um, you know, something practical, like are we going to adjust the thermostat or not, right? So that's not exactly a metalinguistic negotiation, it's, but it's like a practical conflict that seems like on the surface it's about our language, but it's really about something else. It's like, are we going to spend the money to cool this place down more or, <laughs> you know? So um, I think you're entirely right that, um, you know, we're not always disagreeing when it looks like we are. Right. Um, but sometimes we really are disagreeing. And then Hank is raising the question when when there's no other way to understand what we're what we're doing other than disagreeing. Is what is it possible for one of us to be right and the other one to be wrong? And I am committed to the view that it's possible for one of us to be right. Do you have a favorite conversation you've had with your kids or one that you think is the most important one you've had? 
So there's one that really had a kind of um, profound effect on my understanding of myself. Uh, So when Rex was four years old, I was cooking dinner one night and he asked me if God was real. And I said, uh, I started the conversation by saying, "Well, well, what do you think? And he said, I think that for real, God is pretend and for pretend, God is real. Whoa. And I was just kind of stunned. It came out from him like that crisp. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, God isn't real, but when we pretend he is. And I, I thought about that for weeks after he said it, because I've always had this puzzle about myself, which is I don't think of myself as a believer in God in the sense that I think the stories that I learned in, uh, in religious school describe the way the world actually is. But nevertheless, I go to synagogue and I celebrate holidays and I observe Yom Kippur and Passover. And I've always wondered why this disconnect? Why am I doing this? if I don't actually think that God is real. And Rex helped me appreciate the answer, which is it's a kind of pretend, a kind of pretend play, really, that enriches my life in much the way that pretend play from kids enriches their theirs. It gives me a kind of structure for celebrations and a reason to be with other people and participate in activities that are joyous. It gives me a connection to a community. And so I'm fully on board with, uh, with this idea that, uh, that for real, God is pretend, but for pretend, God is real. So that's just a taste of season 18. I hope you'll join me as I talk with some of the most interesting people in the world. And we'll try to keep it all clear and vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Justin and so good. Thousands of spring deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save big today on new arrivals from Kate Spade, New York, Nike, Sam Edelman, Free People, and Madewell, starting at only $30. Great brands and great prices on dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and more. So rack your look and get first dibs on spring styles you want now from just $30 at your Nordstrom Rack Store. What will you find? Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University, that's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application.